Good morning, everyone. Thank you, John and Julia, for leading us in song, and Tom and Caleb for leading us in the ways that you have as well. It's a joy to be together again this morning. It's good to be outside. I can see that our back row Baptist, front row son is competing with one another this morning, which is really interesting, as we are uh, glad to be outside again this morning. We're not going to be ridiculous about staying outside with weather. Um, someone said to me last week or the week before, there are there is no bad weather, there's only bad clothing. That's what they say in Scandinavian countries, but we're not going to take that approach. Uh, but as long as the weather is of this nature, we're glad to be outside in one place together without having to worry about wearing masks and those types of things. So as long as we can, we're grateful for gathering here. And as an expression of gratitude to Heritage for their hospitality, and they didn't uh, do this with uh, expectation of receiving anything, but as elders, we uh, discussed on Wednesday and decided uh, of the elders' discretionary fund that we have, um, we're going to give $5,000 to Heritage just to thank them for uh, just making the space available to us uh, and bless them as a school in the work that they're doing. So we are glad to do that. And so, sure, you can express that appreciation, absolutely. One of my favorite movie scenes from one of my favorite movies, and I don't, I don't really talk about movies a lot, I don't watch a ton of them, but uh, I really like the National Treasure, National Treasure 2 movies. And in National Treasure 2, while in a race to discover Cibola, which is the lost city of gold, supposedly in the Black Hills in Dakota, the good treasure hunters make a bold move to prevent the bad treasure hunters from finding this Native American treasure first. They kidnap, momentarily, the President of the United States. And they do this not to cause him harm, but to simply ask him privately about the existence of an item that he otherwise couldn't acknowledge. And this item is called the President's Secret Book. And in the movie, there's a rumor held by conspiracy theorists, which one of the good treasure hunters is, that this book exists and it contains all of the nation's biggest secrets. And the book is supposedly passed down from one president to another, and each president chooses its own, his, his or her own unique location for the book's hiding. Now, convinced by their noble motive of rediscovering this national treasure, the president reveals, in fact, that the book exists. And with the FBI now hot on their trails, the treasure hunters are directed to a secret compartment in the restricted section of the Library of Congress because the president says, where else do you hide a book? So with law enforcement quickly closing in, they, f they finally get their hands on the book and they're frantically thumbing their way through the pages of the president's secret book looking for the missing clue to the location of the city of gold. Now, this flicking through the president's secret book is to the agony of the character who is the conspiracy theorist, theorist because in their hurry, they are just blowing by entries on the content, missing content of the Watergate tapes, the truth about Area 51, what really happened at the assassination of JFK, all the classics. And the look on his face is painful and hysterical. He's so close to finding out the truth about these things, but he's so far and he's never gonna get the opportunity again. And to one degree or another, I think we can all relate to that longing to be in the know. 
to belong to the inner circle, to have the skinny, to have the scoop, to know what's going on. Well, as it would turn out, there is an astonishing open secret, not a hidden secret, an open secret, that every single one of us has access to, an open secret that has profound implications for our lives and for our church. As we're going to learn from this morning's sermon text, the creator and covenant Lord of heaven and earth actually brings his people into his inner circle. He reveals himself, he reveals his plans, so that we know what he is doing, so that we know what to ask of him. To put it more succinctly, borrowing a couple of words from Kent Hughes, God informs us so that we know how to intercede. God gives us his kingdom of priests, which is what we are in Jesus Christ. He gives us the scoop so that we know how to pray. God informs us so that we know how to intercede. And I sincerely hope that what we are going to work through this morning will truly blow your mind and change our lives and transform our prayers as we consider what is before us. So turn to Genesis chapter 18 in your Bibles, if you would. We're going to pick up in verse 16, where we left off last Sunday, and work our way through to the end of the chapter. So Genesis chapter 18, beginning in verse 16, all the way down to verse 33. We're going to read that together. But before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we're thankful for the reminder that came via our brother Tom this morning as he read to us Jesus' words in Matthew 7 that there is an invitation extended by our Lord urging us, inviting us to come to you, our Father, to ask and to seek and to knock. And so, Lord, on that basis, I would ask for us now, on behalf of my brothers and sisters, on behalf of anyone who is here this morning who is not a Christian, that you would open up our eyes, that you would enlighten our hearts, that you would help our minds to be transfixed on what we are about to read and hear, so that indeed we would be transformed and your church would be built for your honor and for your glory. We pray also for the children who have gone out as well, Lord, that you would bless those leading that session and that the children's eyes would be opened and their minds would be transfixed and their hearts would be enlightened to see who you are, what you have done in Jesus Christ and what you are doing through him to make everything new. And so help us to use this time well to that end, Lord, we pray and we remember our brothers and sisters in other places other local churches, one just in the gymnasium, not far from where we're sitting now, Lord, bless them as they meet in a new location for them this morning. And for other churches, Lord, would you help us, all of us, we pray, to focus on you through your word, by the power of your spirit, for we ask it in Jesus' name, and all of God's people say, amen. Genesis 18 then, beginning in verse 16 to the end of the chapter. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and sent them, set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a, great na- a mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in, in him? For I have chosen him 
that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find thirty there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty are found there. He answered, For the sake of twenty, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose ten are found there. He answered, For the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. This again, brothers and sisters, is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So following the covenant-confirming meal that the Lord had in the presence of Abraham, as we saw last week, this very next scene shows Abraham walking with the Lord as Adam and Eve did before, as Enoch was said to as well, and now we see this covenant partner of Yahweh has this type of fellowship with the Lord. And so in a way, this passage is a continuation of what it looks like for us to be in a covenant relationship with God. And as we saw last time, in that relationship, we are embraced by God's willing fellowship and we are called to trust in God's wondrous works. And as we press on in Genesis, God is showing further what it means for Abraham to be in a covenant relationship, which is to be a priestly representative to mediate blessing to the nations. And all of this is happening in the context of the Lord's evaluation and judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, the original readers of Genesis would already have been aware of what happened to these twin cities, And anyone reading Genesis without such knowledge would have already been tipped off as to what is going to happen. You remember we encountered Sodom and Gomorrah all the way back in Genesis 13 when Lot and Abraham separated and Abraham gave Lot the pick of the promised land. If you go north, I'll go south. If you go south, I'll go north. And instead, Lot looks east and he looks down into the valley And it tells us in Genesis 13 that he saw the Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And then we have this comment. 
This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east, never a good direction biblically, and thus Lot and Abraham separated from each other. Now this poor decision is about to catch up with Lot. But before that, we have this exchange between Yahweh and Abraham. And if I were to summarize the first portion of our text, verses 16 to 21, I would put it this way. The God who forms us as a kingdom of priests informs us as a kingdom of priests. Before we can pray intelligently, we must know God and we must know what God is about. So the God who forms us as a kingdom of priests priest informs us as a kingdom of priests. And that's what's happening here in this first exchange. That Yahweh desires Abraham to be informed is obvious from his asking aloud the question in verse 17, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? And the answer is clearly given in verses 20 and 21, no. Yahweh will not hide from his covenant partner who he is or what his plans are. And so he asks this question out loud and he answers the question out loud all within earshot of Abraham. And the reason for this is given in verses 18 and 19, where God says, again, seeing that Abraham shall surely become, and that's emphatic, shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall bless in him for, see that, mark that in your journals, that's the ground, that's the foundation for what God does here, for I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And then the hope, just very briefly, of tying all of Genesis together to this point, along with the rest of the Bible, ever since Genesis 3.15, God has been unfolding a plan of redemption to restore all that sin has ruined. In Genesis 12, God chooses to work through one family as the next stage of that development. And we hear that very clearly in verse 19. God says, I have chosen him. In choosing Abraham, God has promised to bless Abraham. He'll become a great and mighty nation. This is Genesis 12. In blessing Abraham, God promises to bless all the nations. All the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. And the way that this was to happen was Abraham was to teach the son, Isaac, that was to be born. And Isaac was to teach his children, and Isaac's children were to teach Abraham's grandchildren, and they were to teach what it meant to live in a right relationship with God and a right relationship with each other. That is what doing justice and righteousness means here if you look at that wording uh, in our passage. In doing so, the surrounding nations would observe the beauty and wonder of this covenant relationship as Abraham and company, as a kingdom of priests, mediated, demonstrated what that looked like. And just as the phone in your pocket, if you take it out or you have it out, it right now is mediating information from someone else to you. A text message comes in. Your phone is mediating, communicating something about reality. And just as that phone mediates information and messages from others to you, so are God's people to mediate to the world him and his plan of redemption. P. 
people were to come to know that Abraham and his family belonged to God by the way that they treated one another, which sounds strangely familiar, does it not? By this, Jesus taught, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So it would seem that there is some continuity here between God's evangelism strategy in the new covenant as there was in God's evangelism strategy in the Abrahamic covenant. It's by way of relating to him and to one another that we give evidence of who God is and his transforming power at work in our lives. Now, because God has established all of this and has promised all of this and will bring all of this to pass ultimately in and through Jesus Christ, Abraham is not going to be left in the dark as to God's person and as to God's plans. And so verses 18 and 19 are the reason God answers his question in verse 17 the way that he does in verses 20 and 21. Look there with me. Verses 20 and 21. Then the Lord said, he's answering his question, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Kent Hughes writes here, he says, it is here that Sodom and Gomorrah provide the starkest, darkest contrast because their lifestyle was the absolute antithesis, the absolute opposite of the righteousness and justice that we read about in verses 18 and 19. And as God reveals to Abraham what he's going to do in such a situation, we are reminded of two events that have already happened in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually, and so the Lord judged in the flood. In Genesis 11-5, the Lord comes down. Man's trying to build a tower up into the heavens to make a great name for himself, and the Lord has to come down to see it, and he does. And because they were trying to make a name for themselves, God judged them by confusing their language and scattering the people over the earth. So we've seen it in the flood. We've seen it in the Tower of Babel. Now we see this again in God's dealings with Sodom and Gomorrah contrasted between Abraham and his covenant family. And what this is revealing to Abraham is that God himself is righteous and just and he will not forever tolerate unrighteousness and injustice, the outcry of which reaches to him. As others have pointed out, the Hebrew word for outcry is used in scripture to describe the cries of the oppressed and the brutalized. It is used for the cry of the oppressed widow or the orphan. If you're taking notes, you can write down Exodus 22, 22 and 23. It's used to express the outcry of an oppressed servant, Deuteronomy 24, 15. And Jeremiah uses this word outcry to refer to the scream of terror by an individual or city when it is attacked. And so when God is speaking about the outcry, it's the outcry of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah that has reached his ears and what we are talking about here is more than the homosexual sin that we rightly associate with Sodom, but also, as another says, a heinous moral and social corruption. In Sodom, there was an arrogant disregard of basic human rights, 
a cynical insensitivity to the sufferings of others. That's what's being captured here in this cry. And if you want a modern day example of what this might look like in our own country, we only need to think about the dismemberment and murder of the pre-born, the cries of whom surely reach the throne of God Most High. And then there's the sex slave trade. And then there's Taliban rule in Afghanistan. And there's the situation with the Uyghur people in China. And there's misogyny and elder abuse and spousal abuse and racism. All as outcries that are stark contrasts to the justice and righteousness of God. And add into the mixture, and I know this may be controversial for some, but add into this mixture what seems to me to be the unconscionable coercion of people being forced to choose between their livelihood or a vaccine without any long-term reasonable alternative. This may not be to the same degree as some of the other examples that I have given. I don't mean to compare, but could we not put this on the spectrum? For the record, and you will receive a written statement from the elders about this shortly, we are thankful that this has not been applied to churches, and perhaps it would be good for us to express that appreciation to our governing authorities. But this has not been applied to churches. And as elders, we have concluded that we will not voluntarily adopt vaccine passports for our churches, for our church. And if they happen to be required, hey buddy, how you doing? It's okay, brother. I get it. I've got one of my own. It's all good. More than one, but uh, one about the same age then, so it's okay. If they do happen to be required, we would investigate exhausting all avenues to oppose them for places of worship and respectfully and civilly disobey if needs be. We cannot and would not prevent some of our members from gathering to hear God's word and coming to the Lord's table because of their position on a vaccine. We would not divide God's people this way. And again, we're thankful that this is only hypothetical at this point, but we're praying and talking and preparing for the possibility. I just can't preach knowing that some of you are not here and I, I, I can't lead at the Lord's table imagining that some of you have been told that you can't come for a reason that the Bible doesn't say that you shouldn't. In the meantime, continue to pray for our governing officials and pray for your brothers and sisters, some of whom may soon be out of a job because of all of this. All of this to say injustice in various forms and to greater and lesser extremes, still exists. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah are alive and well, and perhaps even closer to home than we would comfortably like to admit. What happened to them should serve as a sober warning to us of the danger of what Ezekiel summarized as follows. Ezekiel later writes about the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says of them, she and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. And so God informs Abraham that what arises from Sodom and Gomorrah is an outrageous outcry, one that has reached his ears, and a situation that God will judiciously investigate. That's what he tells him in verse 21. I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. If you have ever wondered whether or not God can get to the bottom of every sinful situation 
every complicating factor, every hidden motive, every shady back alley deal, every lie, every injustice. This is his telling us, as he tells Abraham, don't worry. The God who a few verses earlier knew exactly what Sarah was thinking and who hears every outcry of injustice and unrighteousness is willing to condescend to investigate every painstaking detail before pronouncing a verdict. God's judgment is never an uncontrolled, fly-off-the-handle, knee-jerk response. Before judgment comes, he stoops to see and to know. Before the judgment comes on Sodom and Gomorrah, and it will, God informs his covenant partner, Abraham, on exactly who he is and exactly what he will do. His judgments shall be just. The God who forms his kingdom of priests informs his kingdom of priests. He reveals himself. He reveals his plans. He brings us into his inner circle. And while we are there, this informs our intercession. In verse 22, moving on, the man turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Now, apparently the men are the ones, the angels are the ones through whom Yahweh would investigate the situation on the ground in Sodom. And based upon their intelligence report, Yahweh would act. And where the three men went, perhaps two went to Sodom, perhaps one went to Gomorrah. Uh, It's unclear exactly what all is going on here, but we can conclude that the Lord is aware of what's happening. And so they go on to investigate. And in the meantime, Abraham remains and he prays. And you see the relationship between what comes before and what comes now. God informs us so that we know how to intercede, which we can and should do, first and foremost, boldly. God informs us so that we know how to intercede boldly. Look at verse 23. Don't just blow past this short phrase. Then Abraham drew near. Just pause there and let that sink in for a moment. Abraham drew near. And surely this is motivated by the patriarch's inclusion in God's deliberations and plans. This isn't happening in secret. And we know that when someone takes us into their confidence, it gives us greater confidence in the relationship that we have with them. And so it seems here. Abraham draws near, and in drawing near, he speaks to the Lord boldly, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times, but six times. And when we know that the Lord has revealed his person and his plans, which we admit is not fully, we conclude that he does this because he wanted to, for everything that God does is free and purposeful. And so, brothers and sisters, we realize that we who are far off have been brought near now by the blood of Christ. We have been brought into God's covenant family through faith in Jesus. We have been made as a kingdom of priests. And this means that we too can draw near to Yahweh and we can pray boldly. Entering into God's throne room isn't like trying to get someone on customer service at Rogers or Bell or whatever mobile phone you use. It's not like trying to break into Fort Knox. We're not pushing against a locked door. The door is open. 
Access is granted. We have God's ear and God tells us who he is and he tells us what he's doing so that we can come into his presence and ask him to do what he says. And so we intercede boldly. Secondly, God informs us so that we know how to intercede theologically. And by this, I mean that our prayers are informed by who God is. Yahweh's answer to his own question in the previous section reveals to Abraham that he indeed is just. And then Abraham bases his requests upon this knowledge of God. God informs us so that we know how to intercede theologically. Look at verses 24 and down to 26. Abraham there begins his series of requests. Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? There's a direct relationship between what Abraham prays and his knowledge of God. And if our knowledge of God is misinformed, then our prayers will be misinformed as well. And so it's important that we study the scriptures to know who God is as he has revealed himself. And when we do that, and we pray on the basis of God's character, we are always on safe ground. And I would suggest that our prayer shall always be effective when based upon, rightly, the character of God. And so this means that we must pay careful attention to who God reveals himself to be as Abraham does here so that we understand who we address and understanding who we address, we know what to ask for. And I would encourage you to memorize this question of Abraham's, which is another one of those questions asked not from a place of doubt, but from a place of faith. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? The implication is yes, of course he will. On a macro scale and on a micro scale, there is much comfort here. And I've drawn personally much comfort from this and tried to extend much comfort to others from this as well. On a macro scale, when we grieve and groan over the global headlines, we can speak to the Lord and we can say with confidence, you, the judge of all the earth, will do what is right. All accounts, all matters, God will settle. And then when we grieve and groan over the individual headlines of our own lives, we can speak to the Lord with confidence and say that you, the judge of all the earth, will do right. All of the accounts involving my life and all matters involving my life, they too will be settled. Even in the most difficult situations of life, perhaps it's the death of a loved one that you know they died and they were not a Christian. And you can barely bring yourself to think about what their current and future eternal experience shall be like. Come back here and rest in this, that the judge of all the earth will do right. Perhaps you've suffered the loss of a child in the womb or too young to make a profession of faith or maybe you've had a child or a family member with special needs who is unable to understand cognitively the gospel, we come back here and we rest 
knowing that the judge of all the earth will do what is right, what is just. In the end, the scriptures tell us that when all is said and done, when all of God's judgments have been rendered, every mouth will be stopped. No one will be able to point the finger and say to God, you got that one wrong. No one will be able to do this because his ways are perfect and he is righteous and he is just and none shall be able to find fault with him. And upon this, Abraham and we as a kingdom of priests, we rest our prayers. God informs us so that we know how to intercede boldly, so that we know how to intercede theologically. And as we press on and balance to the boldness of the repeated requests, please note also Abraham's blend of humility. Abraham's prayer is not a dark rose for all you coffee lovers out there. It's a medium blend. God informs us to intercede humbly. And though Abraham draws near, though he is basing his pleas on God's, God's self-revealed character, he still recognizes his place. God informs us to intercede humbly, and this comes through three times in Genesis 18. Look at verse 27. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to Yahweh, I who am but dust and ashes. Verse 30. Oh, let the Lord not be angry. Verse 32. Oh, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Do you see how he draws near boldly, but there's also humility? As members of God's kingdom of priests through faith in Jesus, yes, we have been brought into the inner circle. We have confidence to enter God's throne room. We are free to draw near to God, but we must always remember our place. We must always remember there is a creator and creature distinction. Yes, God is our Father, but He is also our God. And I have cringed in the past when I've heard people begin prayers and calling God things like buddy or saying, what's up, God? Let us pray with humility, with a posture of submission and prostration before this Lord of heaven and earth. And notice that Abraham also pray, prays relentlessly. His speaking six times to Yahweh is a mark of boldness, yes, but it's also a mark of commitment. God informs us to intercede relentlessly. And Abraham in the Old Testament reminds me of the widow in Jesus' parable in the New Testament, which he told to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke records it for us in Luke 18, verses 1 to 8. In a certain, certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. 
And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Faith to continue interceding relentlessly because God has informed us that he is just and he will do what is right. And so we ask and we ask and we ask and we do not give up praying that God's will be done because we know who he is and we know what his plans are. And so Abraham asks God to stay his hand for 50 in verse 24. And God replies in verse 26, if I find at Sodom 50, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And then Abraham asks for 45 in verse 18, and Yahweh says, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And then he asks for 40 in verse 29, and Yahweh answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. And then in verse 30, he asks for 30, and God says, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Suppose 20 are found there in verse 31. Abraham says, and again, the Lord indicates, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then verse 32, suppose 10 are found there and the Lord answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And so we ought to pray with such relentless faith because God will act justly for the sake of 50 or 45 or 40 or 30 or 20 or 10. And why doesn't Abraham keep going? What happens if there's less than 10? Well, what we'll see next time is that if there's less than 10, He will save those individuals from the judgment to come because he is just as he said he is. Brothers and sisters, the Lord wants us to know this about him so that we would pray in these ways. He informs us to intercede and nothing has changed about this since Abraham's day. In the end, what I believe Genesis 18 teaches us is no different than what Jesus says to his disciples in John 15 to those commissioned as the first witnesses of this one who loves us and has freed us from his sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. Listen very closely to John 15, 13 to 16 and see if you can hear some of the parallels. This is what Jesus writes. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. Do you hear the disciples are being told that they've been brought into the inner circle and they have been informed about who God is and about what God is doing, just as Abraham was informed about who God is and what God is doing. There's more. Jesus says to the disciples, you did not choose me, just as Abraham didn't choose Yahweh, but Yahweh chose Abraham. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. 
chosen and informed to bear fruit and intercede, just as Abraham was chosen and informed to bear fruit and intercede, just as we have been chosen and informed to bear fruit and intercede, so that through Jesus Christ, the Lord may bring to fulfillment what was promised to Abraham. It's all connected. And brothers and sisters, on this note of intercession, can we stress enough our great need to pray in these days that the judge of all the earth would do right and that the righteous would be spared even for the sake of the wicked. Surely, there is great urgency for this at the present time. A time when there seems to be no fear of God before the eyes of people. Here we are, 18 months later, not yet out of our current predicament. And where, where is the wide-scale cry of people calling out to the Lord for mercy and deliverance? It has not happened. Our nation has not cried out to the Lord even still. We just spent millions of dollars on an election with almost no difference and still our nation has not humbled itself to cry out to the Lord. And it struck me afresh of late the extent of the godlessness. I wonder if we become so accustomed to it that it no longer registers. Our children go to school every day with zero encouragement to cry out to the Lord, to come home, to be immersed in entertainment that has nothing of the Lord in it. We watch a leadership debate with each individual claiming to have the answers while none of them is seeking wisdom from God. We give awards and accolades and prizes for all sorts of accomplishments, but there's no praise of God. The Olympics come and go and we deify the creature and only a handful even acknowledge the creator. There is no thought of God. There is no fear of God before our eyes. None seem to seek for him. But church, have we as we ought? Have we as we ought? Beloved brother Michael Haken recently posted the following on social media. He writes, We as evangelicals need many things. We need wisdom for the public square. That is absolutely true. We need more attention to our understanding of the theology of the church and ongoing passion for missions. We need to recapture our unity in Christ, but most of all, we need repentance and revival. We need to repent of our sins, of our arrogance and pride, of our hunger for political and church power and not for holy lives, of our grieving of the Holy Spirit, of our bickering and slandering one another, of our fascination with gossip fed by social media, of our passion for lesser things at the expense of love for Christ and love for the lost and love for the church, we need to repent of our prayerlessness and our trust in the realm of politics. 
Simply put, he says, we need to know the power of the spirit of Pentecost that was experienced at Pentecost. And again, in the 18th and 19th centuries, we desperately need revival. Will we ask for it? We know who God is. It is an open secret. He has told us what he's doing. We know that through Jesus, God is restoring everything that sin destroyed. And so will we intercede then boldly and theologically and humbly and relentlessly asking that the judge of all the earth would do right and spare the righteous that the wicked as we once were might be delivered from the wrath to come through faith in Jesus Christ. Surely these are the relevant lessons that we are to draw from a text such as this. And so I ask, knowing all of this, shall we pray? Monday at 7 p.m. and Wednesday at noon are still being set aside as times to intercede about these matters. If you want to participate, the information is weekly in our e-bulletin. Will you join us in one of those sessions to pray for revival, that the judge of all the earth would do what is right? Will you watch one less of your episode of your favorite show or one less sporting event and shut everything off and just get down on your knees and relentlessly ask the Lord to do his work in our world? Will you say no to one social invitation in the coming week so that you can get down on your knees to seek the blessing of the nations as a member of God's kingdom of priests? God has brought us as a gift of his grace and he would bring you, if you trust in Christ this morning, as a gift of his grace into his inner circle. He's given us the scoop. The door is open. In the name of Jesus, we can enter. Our war room is the prayer closet where we pray and ask that the Lord would accomplish his purposes in our world. Would you bow with me as I do that now? I'm going to pray through Isaiah 59. And then we're going to sing and be reminded of what it is that we are to do, which is to see the nations be glad in Jesus Christ. Would you bow with me in prayer? From the words of the prophet, Lord, we see and agree that your hand is not shortened that it cannot save or your ear dull that it cannot hear. But as with your covenant people in the past, so it may very well be the case now that our iniquities have made a separation between you and us. And we tremble at the thought that your sin, our sins would have hidden your face from us so that we would not hear. And so, Lord, if there are any ways that our hands are defiled with blood and our fingers with iniquity and our lips have spoken lies and our tongues have muttered wickedness, I pray, Lord, that you would lead us to repentance. Help our feet not to be swift to evil and to shed innocent blood and let there be no thoughts of iniquity or desolation or destruction in our path. I pray, Lord, there would be justice in our path, that we would not make straight roads crooked and that justice would not be far from us and instead righteousness would overtake us. 
We tremble, Lord, for we look around and we see that we are like a people groping for a wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men and women. So many around us are moaning like doves, hoping for justice, but it seems like there is none and salvation, but it seems far from us. And I pray, Lord, that you would impress upon us any ways in which our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins would testify against us. Help us, Lord, I pray, to humble ourselves in the church and beyond that we would no longer deny you as the Lord and that we would turn back from following idols. We pray, Lord, for what is happening in our world right now, for it seems to us that justice has turned back and righteousness stands far away and truth has stumbled in the public square and uprightness cannot even enter. Truth is lacking. And those who depart from evil make themselves like a prey. And we know, Lord, that you see this and it displeases you that there is no justice. And so, Lord, would you put on righteousness as your breastplate and a helmet of salvation on your head and garments of vengeance for clothing and wrap yourself in zeal as a cloak. And according to your deeds, Lord, to our deeds, we pray that in wrath you would remember mercy. At the same time, we also pray that you would repay so that people would fear your name from the West and your glory from the rising of the sun in the East and that you would come like a rushing stream, like a redeemer. I pray, Lord, that you would show the people of our nation the covenant that you have made through Jesus Christ and that for we, your people, that your spirit would be poured out upon us in a greater way so that our words would be on our mouths and we would not depart from the words of your mouth and that we would pass them on to the next generation from this time forth and forevermore. O oh Lord, teach us who you are. Teach us in a greater way what you are doing and help us to be found often on our knees alone and together seeking your face for the blessing of the nations that we ourselves experience in and through Jesus Christ and I pray, Lord, that even this morning, those who are here with us who aren't Christians would come to experience themselves. Oh, Lord, help us to see that there is only true gladness and joy found in Jesus Christ and use us to bring this message to a world so desperately in need of it. And so revive us again, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, amen. I'm gonna invite John and Julia to please come and lead us to sing, let the nations be glad.